For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So I want to welcome everyone to Ancient Dragons Engate. I'm Douglas Floyd. I'm the temple director. Um, most of us who are sitting in the Zendo today and a couple of people in the online Zendo are engaged in uh, extended sitting for most of the day to celebrate Bodhi Day, the day of the Buddha's, Shakyamuni Buddha's enlightenment. In Japanese, the retreat is usually called Rohatsu to mark the eighth day of the 12th month in which Shakyamuni Buddha was enlightened. And in Japan, it would, the celebration would usually be marked by it with a um, seven day sashin that would end on the December 8th, which is what Rohatsu stands for. Um, Because we're celebrating the enlightenment of the Buddha, I thought it would be appropriate to read a story about that and discuss a story about the Buddha's enlightenment from uh, the Dunko Roku, The Transmission of Light by Kezan Joking. Let me take one quick detour. Last week, people who were online had some problems understanding the Dharma talk because of the, the mask. Uh, a question I would have, are people able to understand me reasonably well? So far, I am getting yeses in chat to my question. Can people hear okay? Okay. Um, do you need to see my face to understand? They are saying, no, oh, thank you. Okay. Well, <laughs> I hope that was your interpolation. This is what they did. <laughs> so the Denkoroku was written, it's a collection of stories, of enlightenment stories of the ancestors, said ancestors of their 28 ancestors in India, beginning with Shakyamuni Buddha. Uh, and uh, 21 ancestors in China and two in Japan, Ehe Dogen and his student Koen Ejo. Gezan Jokin, who assembled these stories and commented on these stories, was Dogen's great grandson in the Dharma. So his, uh, his teacher, Tetsugikai, had received transmission from Ejo. Um, and this is the story. Shakyamuni Buddha saw the morning star and was enlightened. And he said, I and the great earth and beings simultaneously achieve the way. And Kizan's verse says, one branch stands out on the old plum tree. Thorns come forth at the same time. So this awakening, Shakyamuni's awakening had taken place 
after six years of strenuous religious practice, uh, there are various versions of, of the story. Um, most of you are probably familiar with the general outlines that the Buddha, and we won't try to argue that this is historically accurate, but the story in the tradition is that the Buddha was born in northern India uh, as a prince. And he lived a very protected life because uh, a soothsayer had told his father that uh, Siddhartha, his son, who grew up to become Shakyamuni Buddha, would either become a great king or uh, a great religious figure, the, the great Buddha. And his father wanted him to carry on the family business and not become a great religious figure. And so he protected him and taught him all the ways of being a ruler, uh, being a soldier. Shakyamuni lived a, a prosperous life, a happy life with lots of pleasure, lots of security and prestige. He was married and he had a son. In the story that all, I think all of the traditions tell is how his charioteer, when he was 29 years old, took Gautama out on rides uh, throughout the city, outside the palace. And on consecutive rides, he saw an old, feeble, tottering man, a sick man, and a corpse. And on one last trip, he saw a sadhu, a wandering yogi. And um, each of the trips in which he saw the old man, the sick man, and the dead man shook him really to the core. It had never occurred to him that his life was itself subject to this kind of change, that everything in his life was uncertain, and he didn't know how to live and how to respond to this. But he saw the sadhu, who seemed to be happy and calm, and that inspired him to follow a religious life in order to uh, attain the same serenity. So he left the palace in the middle of the night, leaving behind uh, his position and his family. He shaved his head and he immediately sought out famous teachers of meditation. He studied with a number of them who had uh, different systems that were intended, especially through concentration practices, to bring about certain specific experiences. And uh, let's just call him Shakyamuni. Uh, practiced all of those successfully, but he found them lacking, that they did not lead to the relief of suffering or to uh, the elimination of what a, a true understanding of the world. So he began to practice extreme ascetic practices with a group of five other yogins. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, is extended into this century, although obviously not as much as before, but there are yogins who will take on very harsh practices, um, like uh, standing up all of the time, uh, staying in the heat, this all of the time, 
and practicing extreme fasting. And this isn't intended to be some sort of uh, penitential practice. It's related to philosophies in which uh, the yogin is trying to become, ignore, or become at least indifferent to whatever is sensual and conditioned in order to become aware of either Brahman, which underlies the things of the world, or to become aware of Purusha, which is the individual soul that in some systems uh, people believe is the, the fundamental uh, particle of consciousness and pure being that underlies each of us. So Shakyamuni had practiced that. He had practiced fasting to such an extent that when you looked at him from the front, you could see his spine. Um, and that wasn't, um, that wasn't to be very satisfactory either. And one day after collapsing uh, from exhaustion and hunger and discouragement, uh, he received some nourishment from a milkmaid. He ate food from her and then resolved that he was going to sit under a tree without moving until he reached unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment. And he did that, sitting unmoving for a full week, uh, so still that... Um, Spiders formed webs between his eyebrows and birds nested in his hair. And after the seventh day and the third watch of the night, so between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., he looked up and saw Venus, the morning star, and awakened. So... That was when, having awakened, he made that statement that I and the great earth and all beings simultaneously achieve the way. So just to provide a little clarity about this statement, you know, what he's talking about is, is the entire universe, all objects and beings in the universe. The, uh, so there's Shakyamuni, I, and the great earth, all in sentient beings throughout the universe, and beings is all sentient beings. And, you know, what has, what has happened is he has sat for seven days and for six years before that, uh, letting go of self, learning to let go of thoughts and feelings, desires, uh, judgments, the sense of himself as a, as a separate being, uh, separated from the world and a static being in the world. And when he had reached that point and reached a still open consciousness, he looked up and saw the morning star and for the first and then recognized that this wasn't the star that he was looking at out there from here, that he was uh, an outside perceiver of, of the world out there, but that 
the star, he and the star existed together in this great universe. And that all of this insentient and sentient beings throughout the universe existed together in a spacious, indivisible whole with a constant support in which all things act as causes and conditions for the existence of other things. And when he says simultaneously, Shakyamuni or I and the great earth and all beings achieve the way, uh, that can, can be understood as uh, an awakening, uh, becoming aware of, of ultimate reality, but also achieving the way means that all things uh, act in accordance with causes and conditions and in accordance with their existence as part of this undivided whole universe, what we would you frequently call Buddha nature. And when he says simultaneously, uh, it's a, a simultaneous achievement of the way is not a one-time event, something that happens over an instant after instant, moment after moment, over and over again, uh, throughout space and time, the entire universe awakens. Uh, and we don't see this ourselves because of our deluded clinging to desires, and our deluded conceptual thinking, which obscured this for us, that it's that thinking and clinging to desire that makes us perceive ourselves, have a sense of ourselves as being separate from the world and all other things being separate from each other, somehow perhaps interrelating in some way, but being fundamentally fixed and unchanging. Now, in Denkoroku, Keizan relates each of these enlightenment stories and he provides, provides comments and, and they're very interesting. And this one with the statement that I and the great earth and all beings simultaneously achieve the way, the first thing that Keizan notes is he wants to bring out that Shakyamuni is making a statement from this expansive perception and understanding of the world. And so Keizan says, well, this I this I is not really Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni and all beings and the great earth each come from this great I. That, and, and he tries to communicate that this great I is, in fact, this, the entire universe. Um, so that the Buddha's awakening is not an individual, let's say, psychological experience that's happened once, but it is uh, the realization by the entire universe throughout space and time of its true nature. 
and he points out that, well, understanding that, that when Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni cannot be understood as separate from the great earth and all beings. So when we refer to Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni is included in all beings. And that when, when you could say Shakyamuni became, uh, achieved the way, uh, all beings in the great earth also achieved the way. So, uh, And he points out that as a result of that, you can't see this as Shakyamuni uh, become enlightened on his own. He's not apart from or outside of our great earth and all beings. And that therefore, because the universe is perceived by Shakyamuni Buddha and is in fact this indivisible uh, world of uh, Objects, which are not truly separate things. Uh, you can't really say that when Shakyamuni becomes enlightened, I become enlightened. When I become enlightened, Shakyamuni becomes enlightened. It's all when I become in, when the I becomes enlightened. Uh, when the great earth and beings become enlightened, that whole becomes awakened and achieves the way. So we have to get rid of this idea of thinking about in terms of Shakyamuni and you. Uh, and, and I think that um, another interesting thing, the way he tries to get at this experience in words, which is really, you know, words are, inherently uh, deceptive because they are referring to specific units of being, static, separate things, at least as we conceive of them. But he is trying to help us to understand this and says, another way to think of this is you have to understand and so when, when Shakyamuni says, I and all beings and the great earth simultaneously achieve the way, you have to understand and is the equivalent of I. That I and great earth and all beings is not the same as, not entirely different from I, what he doesn't say, he doesn't say it specifically, but what he's getting at is that I is the equivalent of Shakyamuni greater of all beings run together. It's not Shakyamuni and greater than all beings, but all of them in an indissoluble, complete whole. This is what um, Suzuki Roshi would refer to frequently as things as it is, so that there are objects in the universe, but they are not really things. They are a whole, inseparable, interacted, mutually supporting 
mutually causing, mutually conditioning hope. I think he makes the point of trying to, to explain that you need to understand and in order to avoid confusion around his use, his first statement that I is really not Shakyamuni, it's the entire universe because he doesn't want, he, he wants us to think of I as the great earth and all beings because he doesn't want to suggest that there's some sort of essence or pure being that is underlying the world and forming the world. That's, that's what the world really is. If you can get behind the phenomena that we exist, that exist and that we perceive. So I, I think, um, I think that's about as effective as, as you can be in talking about this experience. But it's not really there, is it? I mean, that's not when Shakyamuni says, I and the great earth and all beings simultaneously achieve the way. He's talking about this experience that he had. That's not the experience that he had and that we need to, to experience ourselves, that we want to learn to live with. You know, his experience was when he saw the morning star and realized that he exists with the morning star and with the entire universe, the entire universe of objects, but is not apart from them or separate from them. He's not a separate perceiver. He's not a separate actor. He's not a separate judger or liker. And I guess the question that we have to ask is, uh, can we hope to pierce this ourselves? I mean, I think it's fair to say that none of us sitting in this room will, or online will during this lifetime achieve the Buddha's unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment. But it is the case that we can come to experience and understand what the Buddha experienced, that we can, we can experience the world in the way the Buddha did, that this is not something that what we need to uh, experience and appreciate is not some conceptual statement, it's not a sentence, a philosophical statement, that all things form a whole and are not and are indivisible. Um, that's talking about it. That we're looking for the experience of not being separate from the world. And we can do this. We can come to experience the world, this moment, this situation, because this sense of ourselves that's separate and it causes us to see the entire world this way is entirely tied up with the way conceptual thinking and desire work. In the case of desire, which is also tied up with the conceptual understanding of the world as we become attracted to things and focus on things. When we focus on an object of desire, it becomes 
reified, it becomes in our awareness and our understanding, it becomes a fixed, solid, separate thing. It's an object of our desire, and therefore we are a subject of the desire. When we get caught up in our thinking, we get caught up in the in the sense that we are thinking about some object of our thought. And at the same time, by getting caught up in it, the, you know, the, the usual terms that are used for, for the traditional Buddhist and, and Zen vocabulary is we attach to the desire. We attach to the thing objects we desire. We attach to thinking. We attach to the objects of thought. We abide within them. We dwell within them. We are absorbed within them. Another thing, a phrase that I like for this is Vikanza, um, the great Buddhist translator, would refer to these as mind coverings. These desires and conceptual thinking cover our mind and shield us from perceiving the world the way it is by causing us to project this understanding of the world as a collection of separate uh, interacting things. So I've referred to it before as um, you know, seeing the universe, a bumper car universe, where there are a bunch of things bumping around against each other and flying around, but they're not really, they're separate. And they're not, there's not a relationship among them. Where it's like I'm, you know, throwing out a handful of marbles in a, in a ring and watching them bounce around against each other. We uh, can get beyond that. When we do that, that's what we are doing in Zazen. In Zazen, We find ourselves suddenly, uh, we wake up, we've been attached to these, th these thoughts and, and desires and feelings and judgments, likes, dislikes. We explain the world to ourselves, we explain our zazen to ourselves, and when we get caught up that way, we get focused on this perception, this really narrowed view of of ourselves as the desirer, the thinker, the perceiver of something out there. So our focus is really on that thing that we're desiring or perceiving or thinking about and me. And the rest is there, but it's sort of a backdrop. When we do zazen, there are gaps in the process. And that's when the back, we stop being caught up in the thinking and feeling and sensing and come back to the backdrop. And we can perceive objects, but we, because we are not caught up in that thinking and desiring and the judgments like this, like descriptions, we dissolve the corresponding sense of ourselves as this nugget of being that's separate from the world out there. And the interesting thing is that, that when we wake up and the gaps come, we experience this open 
clear mind, which is the mind of the backdrop, which is always there, uh, in which arises spontaneously. As soon as we try to evoke that mind, um, or as soon as we try to uh, calm our mind or make our mind clear in order to wake up and experience that, we've just occluded the experience of this open, spacious mind because now we're seeing ourselves as an actor who's trying to bring about this state. Our mind has become a thing that we're trying to manipulate and control. So Zazen is is not an attempt to concentrate. It's not an attempt to focus. Uh, it's not a way of controlling. It's not a way of coming to some intellectual understanding that then can be translated into uh, I and the great earth and all beings achieve the way. It is the experience of being here in this situation without this sense of self, of a separate self. And it's there all the time. We keep waking up. All we have to do is come back to this mind, come back to the backdrop, come back to this moment, to this situation, which we experience without experiencing ourselves as separate from this situation. Um, Another way of thinking of this might be, uh, don't try to meditate. Just let Zazen be Zazen. At the same time, then it's helpful for us to find ourselves in this situation, in this moment, to wake up to the spacious mind and to being right here in this situation and to note, to, to pay attention to our breath or our posture and to count in as a way of an anchor to this world to keep us from flying back into our thoughts and desires and distractions, to just stay here linked uh, to everything else that's going on in this moment. Uh, I think that while this is easy to do, and I think people do it all the time, they're not aware of it. And when, when we sit down to do zazen, sometimes uh, we can cloud our experience. So we'll be caught, lost in thought, and the gap will come, and we come back, and we'll think, oh, it's very clear now. I'm not distracted. I'm meditating just fine. Look out there. Look at that clear, inseparable world of wholeness. But then we're, we're again, this perceiver, we're this meditator who's having this experience of this wonderful, unitary, non-dual world out there. Or we, we can't help but try to 
evoke that mind or to stabilize that mind or make it clearer rather than just sitting with whatever is. And what we can do is apply the same perspective to the attempt to control, the attempt to clarify the mind, to the experience of the mind as, of ourselves as the separate seer, which is recognized the non-dual nature of the world out there, is that that's thinking too. And so we can sit with, recognize that, sit with it, and sit with that sensation sense that we are a self, that there's a nugget here that's looking out. And like all other thoughts, it will dissolve and we will come back to sit in this moment. So we're not trying to avoid the thoughts. We sit in clarity so that the thoughts come and go, arise and fall without distracting us. Um, all of our experience becomes and thoughts become part of this moment, part of our experience of the great world. And I think in that's one understanding of Kazan's verse that I, I read after I had read the koan, that, uh, what is it, on the uh, one branch, stands out on the old plum tree. Thorns come forth at the same time. So the branch of the plum tree has the wonderful blossoms, the experiences, pleasurable experiences of a settled mind and realizations of how this is working. We're understanding this experience. But it also has thoughts and desires, clarity, uh, lack of clarity, feelings of fuzziness, um, painful emotions, painful feelings, painful knees, painful backs. But all of that is also part of the branch on the old plum tree. So what I would like you to do for the, those of us who are sitting the all-day Bodhi Day retreat, I'd like for you to practice just sitting here and uh, letting Zazen be Zazen, letting yourself wake up to the backdrop, to this moment, and just letting yourself remain there and letting all thoughts, pleasant and feelings and desires, pleasant or unpleasant, be part of that moment, part of that experience, so that they arise and fall within the clear mind, within this moment, and share the experience and vision of the Buddha. So, I'll leave it there, and I would welcome any comments or questions that anyone may have about this story or about their sitting or their practice generally. Thank you.
please. Dragons and elephants, please bring me your questions. Yes, Ishan. Um, I know that in popular culture and maybe in our heart of hearts, we hold out a hope that meditation will somehow make us into a better person through our efforts at practice. But it sounds like what you're saying through the story of Dr. Miguel is that um, every moment is okay. That, that every moment is just the moment that it. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Um, I think what I would say is that every moment is complete. And it is what it is. I think okay is an interpretation that we would project on. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that. I think that... Um, I think what I would say is I do believe that our practice can make us uh, kinder, more compassionate, more generous people, but that our awareness, our awakening to what is, our ability to step outside of our deluded mind is not contingent upon having perfected ourselves. And become better human beings. Um, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Brian, is up. Oh, Brian, please. Thank you for your excellent talk. Uh, very well elucidated the whole story and how it's so fundamental to what we do here. And it reminded me of a couple of quotes. The original sayers of which I can't remember off the top of my head. One of them is, in life there will be many experiences, just don't don't identify with them. And the other is, when you look for it, you can't find it. (laughs) When you you don't look for it, it is right there. Um, Yeah, that's very similar to the koan, right? The ordinary mind is the way. Yeah. And if you seek it, uh, it retreats away from you. The, harder, the more you seek, the further it moves away. Yeah, I'm reminded that, you know, that also points to the error of duality, you know, the idea that there is actually anything to seek. If you are in wholeness, what is there to seek? There are no things out there separate from you. You know, you are part of this great natural production. Uh, and in fact, there is no you, which leads back to the story. Uh, you know, I and the rest of the world and beings simultaneously related. Yeah. I think, um, It's still problematic to use words, but I think that, you know, what we, what we do is come to experience the world as a giant we and us trying to bypass 
you know, you and me, me and him, to form a we. It's clearly understood that there's no separate entity called we. I'm always coming back to the law of purity and silence. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really the only non-dualistic response to dualism. <laughs> right, but then we're stuck with Categoria's point that you have to say something. Questions on Zoom? Ah, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Wish I could see you. Hi. Thank you for your talk. It was very helpful, Douglas. Um, this kind of tags on to what um, uh, you were just, the discussion you were just having. You know, I, uh, it's difficult to understand, you know, when when it's described that Shakyamuni uh, had that insight and that uh, awareness, not for just himself, but for everyone. Um, that is um, one that um, I, uh, or that enlightenment was not just for him, it was for everyone. And so, you know, lately I've been thinking a little bit about um the impact of the pandemic on the whole world, you know, it seems to me that there is more of a sense of groupness of us, of all of us dealing with some of the same issues, everybody in the world, you know, needing to wear masks, needing to be cautious, needing to be aware of this. Um, And I, I think sometimes about how we are similar to other animals. Um, like birds, sometimes a flock of birds is referred to an organism, you know, or a flock of whales, or I guess it's not a flock, a pod of whales is, is considered, you know, the groupness is there's, there's, an, there's an identity to the group. It, you know, it's an organism in itself. And I, um, but I, I'm just trying to grapple, understand a little bit better the implications of, of, Shakyamuni having the awakening, the enlightenment, and it not just being for him, but for everyone. Yeah, I I don't, you know, about saying that the, his enlightenment was for everyone. I think I, I I understand your point. I think I would say it differently that the universe awakens with Shakyamuni, and and uh, and Shakyamuni is part of the universe. So it would be more like on December eighth of whatever year that was, the universe achieved the way and functioned in accordance with its mutually supporting causes and conditions. Of course, they'd have been doing that all along. So nothing new has happened. But the delusion that it wasn't in the Shakyamuni's sense that that there was some world out there that wasn't, that he did not perceive as complete and functioning in a mutually supporting way, that, that ended. But you know, even delusion arises and falls as part of the world in accordance with causes and conditions. And 
I don't think we could say that that's okay or uh, perfection. Uh, there's always a temptation for us to say that. It's just that it is. And maybe that's saying that when we're talking about the universe, uh, terms like okay and perfection aren't quite on point. So in, in even in occasionally you see in those words used in Zen literature and especially in, in some Tibetan traditions, you know, so Tibetan is the great perfection. Um, I don't think it's speaking literally in, in terms of perfection in that it, the universe now lives up to some standard that's been created so that the universe exists perfectly, but in its completeness. There's nothing else. There's nothing and nothing separate. Um, and it is a challenge to figure out, well, what does that mean in our ordinary life? For example, whenever we, in life off the cushion, we have to use words. We have to think. Uh, and the, the challenge is, well, then how do we think without perhaps becoming caught up in the thought and caught up in the delusion and somehow continue to be part of this moment. And I think part of that is something very similar to Zazen that when we are working, when we are off the cushion, we have these moments of clarity when we feel like, oh, we're back here. and. We, that can happen when we're chopping vegetables or sawing wood. And it's very helpful then to uh, touch an anchor, a physical anchor for our awareness. That as we're here, we're awake. I f I'm aware of the knife chopping. I'm aware of the saw cutting the wood. And uh, there's a wholeness and a completeness there where we become one with the activity. When we don't feel separate from the activity, but we're not thinking, oh, I'm one with the activity. That is also is not what we're going for. We're not going for walking around off the cushion all the time saying, it's all one, it's all one. Um, no, it's to drop off the sense of separateness and then to engage the world as it appears then, when we're not feeling that we are this separate self, that's, that we have to, that is going to give us pleasure or security or that we have to be protected from because it's threatening our sense of self or our actual security. That, when we can do that, then we're, then we're achieving the way and it's a, we're in our activity. The way itself is complete, but we're expressing that. We're realizing that and expressing it in our activity. Anastasia has a question that she has put in chat, and she says, are you saying that on that day, everything became enlightened? I'm, say I'm saying you can say that in the sense that the entire universe awoke. That's how uh, closely intertwined things are, that there are no, they are, things are not separate things, they can be objects, but they are aspects of this great 
life, this great being that is the entire universe, that is the entire Buddha nature, so that when it's just to say Shakyamuni woke up, the entire universe woke up to its non-dual, undivided nature. That's what I'm saying. And that Shakyamuni realized at that moment that everything is in acting as this mutually supporting, undivided, mutually causing, mutually conditioning whole, that is itself expressing and achieving the way, and that that is happening all the time, whether we're awake to it or not. And even our delusion is a part of that. She has a follow-up. She says, yes. So then was it the day that Buddha recognized that everything was the way that it is? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, Brian has his hand up. Or was was there? I think there might have been a hand here. Jerry, was your hand up? Yeah. Then, oh, then sorry. Brian. Brian Taylor. Brian. Thank you. Um, you know, this business of all being being awakening together is sometimes it can be heard as. When Buddha or I am enlightened, boom, you know, everything's enlightened, like some kind of metaphysical energy zooming out from self into the universe. But I wonder if instead, maybe when, when one awakens, all being is simply revealed as it really is, fully itself, natural, complete, to, and together we are all one natural being. Is that along the lines of what you're talking about? Yes. But secretly, I think I like the idea of these energies shooting off from my mind and so on. You know, when I was a boy, I was a big fan of Doctor Strange. So secretly, secretly in my heart, that's what I'm really going for. Well, get Sue's hand is raised. Thank you very much, Douglas, for sharing this wonderful story of Rohatsu. <laughs> I have a, a lot of responses, but I just, the reflection that keeps sticking with me is uh, from other stories and versions of, of this experience known as Shakyamuni Buddha's awakening that, you know, he, Shakyamuni Buddha, before he sat down, was given a gift of some food, as you mentioned, you know, like maybe like a tasty little rice milk pudding uh, by a woman. And one version of that is that the woman uh, was grateful or making an offering to a tree spirit and mistook Shakyamuni Buddha for a tree spirit. <laughs> so, and Shakyamuni Buddha accepted this nourishment and that supported him in being able to sit down under a tree and did whatever he was doing, but I thought it was interesting that he wasn't just sitting still, you know, already he was being supported 
by someone offering food. Um, the tree was providing shelter and even protection at times. Um, he had conversation with demons and, uh, you know, enticing beings and himself. And there, there's conversation. So, so there's something about the experience, I guess, um, is that I was kind of thinking like maybe Shakyamuni Buddha was like, you know, oh, duh, like we're all working together in this world and I'm always supported and I'm learning how to meet the world in this wholehearted, caring way. So I guess I just, you know, I want to thank you for bringing this story up and helping me kind of see it in a different, I don't know, a new way. And, uh, you know, just really grateful that we have this practice together. You know, all these little squares are kind of like Shakyamuni Buddha wasn't just like, I'm sitting still and doing zazen under this tree. You know, lots of stuff was going on. And uh, he got up and he was like, wow, now what? And I feel our our lives are like that. So, um, you know, thank you and everyone for practicing together under the tree, supported by the great earth. That's my comment. (laughs) Thank you. Um, You know, that idea of being supported and, and practicing together I think it is is really brought out by the life of the Buddha because okay after he woke up uh he didn't know what to do uh but I think you know he spent at least a week there are other versions of how long he took just sort of enjoying the sense of relief and joy at having laid down this burden of his delusion and the suffering but after that you know, he got up and started teaching and wandering India for 45 years, bringing this message to everyone, not just, not just monks, but to lay people. And I think an important part of Chinese East Asian Buddhism, and especially the Zen tradition, something new, among other things that it brought, that that people don't talk about. They always talk about the philosophical changes brought to Buddhism in East Asia. But in the matter of practice, I think it's significant that it was in Zen monasteries that people began to practice Zazen together. Before that time in monasteries, people had monks had tended to have their own little huts out in the forest or their own separate rooms, then they would come together to perform ceremonies and rituals that would generate merit and have otherwise good effects. But to to practice awakening, they went off on their own for the most part. And in Zen monasteries, it's all together. People are practicing together, uh, working together, uh, waking up together. And I think that that, uh, you know, that's something that I've certainly appreciated about the opportunity to do all day sittings and sessions in a group here. But it, it does drive home that uh, there's a we here.
What time is it? Oh, it's going to be more practical when you go first. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> what do you do about that knee that hurts? Yeah. More practical than that, even. <laughs> Can we close the windows? That's what you're going to ask. <laughs> well, because it's a 20 mile an hour wind today, so yeah. we probably don't need them open that way. That sounds good. Let's take, let's take care of that one. Let's take care of that, that one first. Just tackle what it is. Okay. <laughs> Did you have a different practical question? Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think I do. Uh, so this would normally be the middle of Ratsu, mm -hmm. and we would be exhausted. And this and we'd be supported by the schedule of each other. And I think I know what I am exhausted. <laughs> Just to explain, he's been sitting Rohatsu with San Francisco Zen Center, so this But also COVID. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh I've been told that I've heard about the antidote to exhaustion sometimes isn't rest, but it is full-heartedness. And when I leave here, there won't be a schedule. Um, what do you have to say about that? What support is there? Um, you know, that's the great problem of lay practice. If we were in a monastery, there'd still be a a schedule that was dictating every moment of the day and helping us uh, accord with the way, achieve the way moment by moment. And I think, um, you know, I think that uh, there, there's not really a method. <laughs> by having, by sitting, we come to, I think, uh, have the, those gaps that allow us to come to awareness happen more frequently, they become more stable, they become more vivid, and we come to recognize them when they happen. You know, the, the, those gaps and that, oh, here I am, here I am, here I am, experiences, just, they happen. They're not something that we bring about. We, what you're doing with your practice is becoming more aware that that's happening. You know, you can come up with routines. <laughs> no, you know, um, Paul Disco, for example, has suggested some techniques, some routines you can set up so that, um, you know, you come back to this moment and stay with this moment across the day. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has an innumerable number of aids to being blank. And that's, I think that's what we have to do. We have to pick, pick four things that you're going to try to use as moments of awakening over the day. Yeah, I think that can help. But, you know, I mean, it's not the case that every time the phone rings, you're going to go, ah, okay, I'm awake. I'm going to feel my hand picking up the headset and speak. There are going to be plenty of times when it rings and you just pick it up. But 
there will be other times when you go, okay, the, the ringing of the phone brings you back. I'm here in this moment. Now I feel the phone. I'm staying in this moment as I speak from this awareness. It is not caught up in uh, me being here talking to someone separate out there. Speaking with someone, not speaking to someone. That's all I got. That's all I got. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Anyone else? Tiger. Um, thank you very much, Douglas, for a very fine talk. Um, really liked all of it. Uh, and I appreciated Brian Taylor and Hogetsu's comments very much. But I want to return to Anastasia's question, which was wonderful. Uh, she asked, does this mean that on that day of Buddha's awakening, everything uh, awakened? Uh, and uh, so I just want to add, in, in response to that question, it's not just that day. So uh, Eihei Dogen, the founder of our branch of Buddhism, Soto Zen, uh, in his, one of his earliest writings, says that um, when one person sits in Zazen, even for a little while, that grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles, mountains and rivers, all things in the universe awaken together with the person sitting. So this is happening, actually, for all of us when we sit zazen. We may not recognize it the way that Shakyamuni and the Great Earth recognized it back then, but it's the way, as, as has been said, it's the way things is, and we have a chance to recognize it. He says, when one person sits upright, displaying Buddha mudra with one's whole body mind. So that's a kind of zazen instruction too. Um, so this is the way things, this, this connectedness and this awakeness is the way we all are. Um, the other side of that, you have to say something, is that that doesn't um, end the uh, conventional world, the phenomenal world's uh, quotient of suffering and oppression and, and, and disease and so forth, and that we then, in the bodhisattva way, respond to that. But um, it's, it's, not, it's not something that happened just 2,500 years ago. We keep sitting together because this is always here. So, so just to say that. And then I also wanted to respond to one thing that Hogetsu said about all the beings that were helping Shakyamuni. And then when he realized that there was this awakeness, he touched, he put his hand down and touched the earth. And the earth itself witnessed, yes, the, this is awakening. And uh, one version of that is that the earth goddess appeared and said, oh, yeah, here's a Buddha. <laughs> anyway, so I just wanted to say all that. Hi, this is Anastasia. I don't know if uh, I think people can hear me, but I, my question had my comment actually had to do with an idea that uh, everything is awake. And maybe it wasn't that when the Buddha was awakened, everything became awake. It's just that he recognized that things were already 
awake. Um, so that's, I guess that's my question is, uh, do we need, I mean, obviously we need to be aware of the fact that things are awake, but does that mean that they are not awake if we are not awake or enlightened? I don't think so, but that's, that was kind of where I was going with that. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess personally, I would say, I think that there are insentient beings and sentient beings. So the question is what being awake would mean. I think it, and that's why I appreciate the statement that the great earth and all beings achieve the way in expressing reality, but not necessarily having had some experience of awakening. I don't, I'm not ready to go to, you know, my clipboard is consciousness. Is that what you're talking about? No, I no, no, of course not. I mean, living things. I mean, but then again, it, it depends on physics and where you want to go with that. But, um, but that's you know, it's just it. Uh, I mean, at this point, I'm I'm willing to uh, basically settle on living things. Although, again, I think there are some scientific minds who think differently about what energy means and how that you know everything is made up and et cetera, et cetera. But if we say that we are not separate, then what are we? not separate from um are we not separate from everything or are we not separate from some things that just goes back to your clipboard thing but in any case i'm I'm willing to just base my comments on sentient beings at this very moment (laughs) okay well i think we'd have to say that we're not separate from anything and i think it's an interesting idea about whether other sentient beings would have that of baseline awareness that I was talking about that is similarly obscured by their sense of need and anger or fear. Maybe that's anthropomorphizing too much. But, you know, that seed of awakening, you know, I, I, I think that I could I could go along with that, that it's there in all sentient beings. If I may, yeah, go ahead. Just a, just a footnote that, for whatever it's worth, Dogen, I don't know about your clipboard, Douglas. Maybe your clipboard, <laughs> maybe your clipboard is an exception, but Dogen did say that fences and walls, tiles and pebbles awaken, whatever that means, whatever he meant by that. So, anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm prepared to say that they achieved the way. I don't know what you meant by awakening. And, and unfortunately, even though we are not truly separate and not in a position to ask him. So, Bryant? Yeah, just to add a hopefully helpful um, perspective on this, there is a whole thread in the Dharma that talks about mind only, which is frequently misinterpreted. And the way I interpret that is in relation to what we're talking about. When you're talking about non-duality, 
we think that our mind, you know, my mind is in my skull right here, and you're sitting way over there. And in terms of non-duality, I think, um, or mind only, leads me back to one of the short suttas of the Buddha, the Sava Sutta, the All, in which he said, what is this All? And you can think of it as the universe. And he says, I and I consciousness, ear and ear consciousness, etc., mind and mind objects consciousness. So when we think of that, in terms of non-duality, what is there that we are ever aware of that is not our mind? I'm looking at you now, that's I consciousness. I'm thinking of the edge of the universe, that's in consciousness. And so the way I interpret that is, what he awoke to is the non-separateness of his of mind from anything. Everything is mind. Um, not that it doesn't exist. I mean, certainly I can touch this chair, but this touching is my mind. In the, in the larger sense, I think, is, that is meant by that. And so that non-duality is a great liberation because then there's a possibility of, of realizing that oneness because it is all just mine. Um, and there's others that elaborate on that that I can quote, but that, I've always found that to be a useful so when he awoke on that morning and saw Venus, um, he realized that was his mind. You know, that there's obviously a star existing somewhere in the universe uh, or a planet or something, but he doesn't know that other than through mind. And Hui Neng adds, I, I thought, a very complimentary quote in the Platform Sutra, in the sixth chapter, he talks about the, the Bodhisattva vows. We say, we vow to save all sentient beings, and Huinang says, what are these beings? And it's not you, Douglas, over there, necessarily. It is angry mind, deluded mind, lustful mind. These are all considered by the sixth patriarch as beings, and one can, in some sense, in that mind perspective, see that interpretation as a very valuable one because when I conceive of you, Douglas, or anyone here as a being, I am already creating a duality, like there is something that I can define and I've got characteristics that I have to compute to you. But when I save the being or purify the being, it's a sense going back to Buddha's insight about the interconnectedness of all things, praticca samatthana, dependent arising. That is the causality. That is the way things are. And that, I believe, is what he woke up to under that tree, that, that interconnectedness, not just that, hey, you know, me and this chair, you know, it's that interconnectedness of my mind being non-separate, from everything that I conceive of. And the, what the delusion is that I think that it's separate. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my um, take on that yeah. whole area. Thank you.